This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, December 7th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Diversity. I like it. I like a cabinet that looks like America, police force that looks like the community it polices, an undergraduate population that more or less reflects the world at large. I don't believe in strict quotas. I know that we can't always achieve the ideal for all institutions. And I see the limits of believing that the only definition of diversity is racial diversity, or that diversity will solve all the ills of exclusion. So, so there's my bona fides. I'm pro-diversity. I think it's a good thing. When I worked at NPR, we'd frequently get criticized for lack of diversity, yet when you took into account the fact that most of the repertorial positions required college degrees, we were more diverse than the population at large. Newspapers embraced diversity, but they probably could do with hiring more Mormons and white folks from Appalachia to understand the hillbilly's lament, as it were. Which brings us to tech companies. Facebook rules our world, determines our news, makes policies that either allow fake stuff to get through or doesn't. They have a big commitment to democracy, but they also have a commitment to their lawyer's advice about keeping a hands-off approach, lest they lose their status as a platform and not a news outlet and get sued. Anyway, the right says Facebook's pretty conservative. You look at the donations coming out of Facebook, corporate headquarters, one hacker way, Menlo Park. Yeah, most of the political donations are to Democrats. But let's look at Facebook diversity. They're supposed to report on this every year. And this year's report has been delayed and we have been waiting. So here's the situation coming into whenever this report's going to be issued. Facebook is the seventh largest company in America by value, by market cap. They're not a huge company in terms of employees. The last filing on record listed 5,479 employees. So of these, let's say 5,500 employees, guess how many were black women? How many black women were employed by Facebook? It's 29. Hey, that was up from 11 the year before. Hiring boom. 29 out of 5,500 black men account for 52 employees, meaning Facebook staff is 1.5% African American. Uh, That, by the way, is under the U.S. total. Other big tech companies do a little better. Google has 628 black employees out of 32,527, so they're 1.9% black. And Apple, the biggest company in the U.S. in market cap, doing much better. They're 8% African-American. That's still underrepresentative, yet let's perhaps permissibly say that they're in the realm of acceptability. I know that there are a lot more factors than just let's count the black people, ooh, Facebook bad. I'm sure that they'd love to have just a stream of highly qualified prospective employees banging down their door to get hired. 
And since the 29 women was more than double the 11 black women from the year before, maybe we could hope for a new uptick this year. Also, let's also note, it's not as if these companies are overwhelmingly white. They're much less white than the population as a whole. A third of Facebook and Google's employees are Asian. But given the enormous outsized, world-shaping sway the companies have, you just have to say, wow, 29 black women at Facebook. Really? The drugstore, a block from my home. No, to be fair, it's a really big drugstore, but it has more than 29 black female employees. It has more black female employees than Facebook. If you add the number of black women in the U.S. Congress, plus the number of black women who were just elected judges in Birmingham, Alabama, you would exceed the number of black women at Facebook. At least as far as we know, we're waiting for the new figures to come out. And when they do, there are 29 people I could think of who will tag those numbers in a post. On the show today, in the spiel, we look to the north and to the skies, to the northern skies. It's Canadian bird news by popular demand, not just bird news, Canadian bird news, Canadian bird news fever, more virulent than the avian flu. But first, we also look to the skies to find a combination mobile command unit, presidential means of transport, Harrison Ford backdrop, and Donald Trump Twitter foil. It's Air Force One. We go inside the presidential plane that the incoming president wants to pull the plug on. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Yesterday, the president-elect tweeted, Boeing is building a brand new 747 Air Force One for future presidents, but costs are out of control. More than $4 billion. Cancel order. So we have all heard that Donald Trump is impervious to fact-checking. Sad for him because the fact-checks kind of bear him out, but it's a little more complicated than just saying that costs are out of control and that these 747 or this 747 will cost $4 billion. To fill us all in is the man, uh, I think the man who originated the $4 billion figure, and he documents that. His name is Todd Harrison. He's with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Hello, Todd. Hi, how are you? I'm well. When you first saw the tweet, did you say to yourself, ah, he must be using my numbers? No, I didn't. Uh, you know, I just figured that uh, his advisors must have actually looked at the Air Force budget documents uh, and realized <laughs> how much it, they've actually budgeted in there in the past. Uh, and my first thought was, okay, he's got the number right, uh, but he seems to be implying something that's not true. Uh, and so there are two parts of that that you just alluded to. He implied that it's a plane, and it's not a plane. It's two planes they're right. planning to buy. He, he he literally, I, think, I think literally said it when said Boeing is building a brand new uh, 747 Air Force One. And by the way, it's not a 747, yeah. is it? Well, it's a 747-800 series, yeah. but it's heavily modified. Right. Uh, so it's based on that commercial platform. But the other thing is he said in the treat, tweet is costs are spiraling out of control, which implies that the cost estimate must have gone up. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're at the very beginning. 
speaking of this program, you know, defense programs are notorious for cost overruns. Yeah. Give this one time and maybe it'll have a cost overrun, but it hasn't had a chance yet. It's still at the very uh, initiation stage of the program. So no, costs haven't spiraled anywhere yet. Right. So a garden variety 747-800 series costs almost $400 million. They're going to buy a couple of them. That is, you know, almost, let's say $800 million, maybe a billion dollars without even modification. But what they're spending on now, and I learned this from reading you among other people, is just the research and development for the stuff, the hardware, the um, modifications to help it avoid you know, oncoming surface-to-air missiles. That's what they're spending on now, right? Right. And so if you look at the Air Force's budget request uh, from this past year, uh, what it shows is that research and development funding from 2015 to 2021 uh, is about $2.9 billion just to do that development work that's required to make these special modifications uh, so this can be the, the president's command and control platform uh, in a national emergency. And so to be clear that even if Trump uh, wins a second term, he's not talking about canceling an order for any planes that he will ever use, except maybe as a guest of a future president. <laughs> yeah, that, that is correct. And the tradition has been uh, that an outgoing president would initiate the program uh, so that an incoming president, it wouldn't look like they're doing something self-serving. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it probably even bypasses this president. It, the research and development, can that be applied to any other planes, any other technology besides literally these two planes to serve this one very important person? Yeah, not really. Uh, I'm not aware of any other platforms. And to be clear, a lot of the technologies that they would be incorporating into this plane, they already exist. They are already used on other planes. They just have to adapt them for use on this specific plane. You know, so like uh, countermeasure systems like flares and chaff uh, to confuse missiles. If someone tried to launch, you know, a missile at at the president's plane, uh, they're just drawing that from other military systems that already uh, have those countermeasures. They just have to adapt them uh, to be used on Air Force One. If the question is, is $4 billion uh, a good price for this plane or not? uh, It's hard to say because there's nothing to compare it to because it's unique. You know, in terms of this program, number one, you know, if you want to focus your effort on, uh, you know, expensive defense acquisitions and buying things that may be gold plated, maybe that we don't need, there are many other programs uh, to look at in the defense portfolio right now of things that are very expensive, have had huge cost overruns that are of marginal military utility. There are a lot of other programs you could look at other than this one. Right. But this, is, but this is the one program where the president or president-elect wouldn't be cutting the defense of anyone else, wouldn't be cutting the defense of, you know, a, a pilot or a fighter or an airman. It, it's the impression that he's doing this to himself, which is not true because for two reasons. Yeah. One, it won't take place till 2024. And two, you know, it's not just Don- Donald Trump president. It's the office of the president and it's the right. country's defense. If there's an, a nuclear war, we have to have someone in the air making the uh, decisions. Yes. And so that I think that that really is, you know, the, the importance of the platform here that we have to remember uh, is that it. Yes, it is not directly uh, putting service members' lives at risk to have a less secure 
uh, Air Force One, but it indirectly is uh, because that, you know, the president is at the top of our national command authority. Uh, and, you know, as we saw on 9-11, uh, when the attacks happened and we didn't know what was going on and we, you know, they, they rushed the president out of the uh, elementary school down in Florida to put him in a secure place. What did they do? They followed protocol. They put him on Air Force One and kept him in the air until they, you know, knew that he was going to be safe on the ground. Uh, and so you, you never know when you're going to need this capability and, you know, the success of our military and ultimately the security of our nation could one day hinge on uh, the capabilities of this plane. So from where you sit uh, in, in your job and in a think tank that looks at uh, strategy and defense procurement, I'm sure you often hear debates. Is this program worth it? Is that program too expensive? Have you ever heard that, though, with the Air Force One program? I have not. I have not heard debate, any debate uh, about the cost of this program. It's simply because it's down in the weeds in terms of the defense budget. You know, we tend to debate programs that cost $10 billion or more, uh, quite frankly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's, and there's plenty to debate there. The smaller programs usually don't attract attention unless there's something egregious uh, that happens in them. Uh, and this program is too new uh, to have had any problems like that. Right. But it does fit the pattern of Donald Trump in communicating with the public he doesn't usually take on extremely complex issues. He goes for gut issues. And I do think that Air Force One has an iconography. People think at mm -hmm. least they understand it. And so it's much easier for the layman to get their head around than if you were to talk about, you know, B-2 bombers or hundreds of F-35s or, you know, a more complex system. Also, you know, if we want to talk about uh, the Air Force One replacement program, you know, let's talk about some of the, the real issues, and they are complex, and there's not a good answer to them. Number one is this is a sole source contract to Boeing. Yes. Uh, why is that? Boeing is the only American company that builds airplanes of this size. So we don't really have alternatives unless we're willing to allow an international competitor, which would be Airbus or their American subsidiary, EADS. Are we willing to uh, let a, a foreign-based company uh, bid an aircraft? And I think you know Airbus would probably bid like an A380, um, which is their largest plane. Uh, are we willing to let them bid an aircraft like that and compete with Boeing and potentially award it to a foreign company and have the U.S. president flying around on a, uh, a European airplane? Um, you know, there's an interesting question for you. <laughs> I don't think anyone wants to debate that issue, though, because we all know that at the end of the day, we're, we're going to have the American president flying around on an American airplane. Um, but, you know, that that's a complicated issue for defense acquisitions is too often now we're finding ourselves with de facto monopolies within the U.S. where there's only one firm or in some cases just one or two firms that can actually make the kind of systems the military uh, is trying to procure. Yes. And as a last point, I just want to point out that even though we were talking about what would it be like if the president of the United States were flying around on a foreign jet, I did look it up and the presidents of many foreign countries fly on a U.S. jet, including Bangladesh, Bahrain, <laughs> Belarus, Benin. These are just the B's, Brunei. Yeah. And this was interesting. China. In China, they fly uh, Boeing 737. 
<laughs> and that's the way we like it. We like yeah. everyone flying on American-built planes. And, you know, I think Trump would support that as well. <laughs> well, we'll find out if he tweets about it in the future. Todd Harrison is the director of Aerospace Security Project and Defense Budget Analysis at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thank you in joining me in the, uh, you know, most highly publicized 24 hours of your life. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that, but we'll see. (laughs) Thank you so much, Todd. Glad we could do it. Bye. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. And now the spiel. Canadian bird news. Canadian bird news. Canadian bird news. I didn't choose it. It was me that it did choose. Hit it again, Chris. Canadian bird news. Now I'm a learned man. I could navigate the seas using just a sextant. I could eat foods in the wild that would make a billy goat puke. But I cannot, for the life of me, hold forth on the poultry choices of the people of Newfoundland. Until now. This week, the New York Times, combating a rash of fake news by putting forth some real but highly irrelevant news, focused on the Newfoundland habit of eating a small, penguin-like little ball of puff called the myrrh, although Newfoundlanders call it the tur. The myrrh is great at diving in the water, bad at flying in the sky, which means it's pretty easy for even the least skilled Newfoundlander to blast it out of the air in order to bag his limit of myrrh, or as the Newfoundlanders call them, tur. It seems like a veritable tur slaughter, a myrrh massacre, a murder of murder. Quote, Tur is the local name for the myrrh, which looks something like a diminutive flying penguin, and men in boats are blasting away at it in the only legal non-aboriginal hunt of migratory seabirds in North America. The Times does not get into why Newfoundlanders call the myrrh the tur, just that they do, and then they kill it. The tur, which elsewhere is known as the myrrh, did you know that, is more puffy than feathery and seems to have very little meat on it. Hunting the myrrh slash tur was a precondition for Newfoundland joining Canada. That happened in 1949. What a conversation that might have been. Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, we have agreement with the Newfoundlanders, but they have one demand. What is it, Gerald? They wish to bag up to 40 tur. What is tur, Gerald? Uh, well, we call them myrrh. Well, why do they call them tur, Gerald? No one knows, sir, but that is their one demand. They have a demand about the myrrh. They call them tur. The tur. All right. So let me ask you this. Could we get access to their resources? Yes. Yes, sir. Could we get their taxes? Yes. Yes, we can, sir. Their coast? Yes. We'll now have an eastern maritime border. Sure. And they want, they want tur, sir. What is tur again? Tur is myrrh. Okay. I say we do it. And did it, they did. And the tur limit stands at 20 a pop. Legal limit of 40 in your possession at one time. More than that, you could be charged with possession with intent to distribute myrrh. Though in Newfoundland, they call them tur. What about pelican? We call that telican. Okay, what about the red-footed booby? 
the breadfruited ruby. Interesting. You Newfoundlanders are a compelling people. But that, that is not the only item in Canadian bird news. Chris. Canadian bird news. The national bird of Canada. No, it's not the tur or the mur. That a vote up there. Perhaps you are familiar with some of the iconic birds of Canada. The Canadian goose, fabled in story and jackets. That is one iconic bird. Or the loon. The loon's on their dollar coin. They're the quintessential fowl in the water north of the border. Or even the blue jay. A bird so pleasant they named a team in search of reliable relief pitching after it in Toronto. Yet the Royal Canadian Geographic Society was having none of this. No, not the Blue Jay. They instead chose... After narrowing down the flock of contenders, it announced this week that the Grey Jay is its pick for national bird. But not everybody agrees. I don't agree. And bird scientist Bill Montevecchi doesn't seem especially a flutter when he talked to the CBC. I mean, what are you going to do? you got to pick somebody and or some species, and uh, I'm okay with it. I mean, it didn't get the most votes. What? It didn't get the most votes? This is a serious election to select a bird with a non-binding Canadian designation. What kind of crazy third world country would allow the winner of such an important contest to go to a candidate who didn't even get the most votes? In case you missed my subtle analogy, here's Bill Montevecchi again. They didn't go with a popular vote, so it was almost like they went with the Electoral College. And not oh, no. <laughs> now, what happened was that the poll, according to the professor who ran the thing, was just meant to create a debate. This professor, a Dr. David M. Bird, so you have to wonder with whom his allegiances lay, argues that the Grey Jay is in every province, and yet it is not the bird, the official bird of any province. So his thinking goes, since the loon is the bird of Ontario, and the snowy owl is Quebec's bird, they came in number one and two in the poll, to elevate one of those birds to national bird would be akin to elevating a provincial flag to the national flag. Horse feathers, I say. Consult your equine colleague for the derivation of that one, Dr. Bird. Yours is not an apt analogy. A better point is that the 10 provinces and three territories all had the chance to make the Grey Jay their provincial bird. And we know they had the chance because as you admit, nay, proclaim, the Grey Jays are in every province and they chose not to do it for the Grey Jay. They had their chance. This would be like if an also ran for Miss Delaware was elevated to Miss America. No, 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 no. Nay, 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 nay. This is a double nay spiel. This would be like if an itinerant pageant contestant who failed to win Miss any of 12 states she was in was somehow elevated to Miss America. And it would also be like if the head of the Miss America Foundation were named Dr. David M. America. Look, there's a lot going on here. And it's all wrong. From the subverting of democracy to Newfoundland rhyming slang to a clear case of national bird by fiat. When I embarked on this edition of Canadian Bird News. Canadian. No, no, Chris, no. Now's not the time. When I embarked, I was full of optimism. I was full of passion. I was full of hope. And that has been diminished today. I have not yet lost all hope. I simply no longer believe hope to be that thing with feathers. Play me out. Canadian Bird News. Thank you. 
And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson is overseeing a contest to name the official hot sauce of the Mexican province of Tabasco. It's Sriracha. Just producer Chris Berube ran a poll to determine the official vegetable of Brussels, Belgium. It's the rhubarb. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, been studying the national breakfast item of Belgium, eggs. Although in Holland, it's eggs Florentine. Chief content officer of the Panoply Network, Andy Bowers, has named the national small entirely edible fish of Sardinia, the kipper. The gist, very much behind the effort to name the official dog breed of Newfoundland and Labrador. It is the Maltese, although Newfoundlanders call it the Tall Meese. Um, Umpru, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening.